Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Stannis. He is the CEO of Story Health. Tom, thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here, Nick. Thanks for having me. So as I do with all of my guests, I think uh, important to get a little bit of the backstory. You've certainly got an interesting one with um, some exciting elements. Tell us a little bit about how you got here and your journey to this point at uh, Story Health, if you would. Uh, yeah, happy to. Uh, my background is not actually in medicine. I actually started off as an engineer. I worked in the early days of Google building the, the systems there. And then about 10 years ago, I was riding my bike uh, in Northern California where I live and I got hit by a car. I have I have no memory of any of this uh, because I had a concussion. I ended up waking up in the emergency department at Stanford and they said, well, we're going to put you into a CT scan to see whether you have any broken bones. One of the CT scan came out and said, well, good news is you don't have any broken bones. However, uh, there's this mass in your kidney. And it turns out that I had stage one kidney cancer and had no idea. And, and there's no way of knowing when it's stage one. Uh, there's no symptoms. By the time you do have symptoms, it's typically stage four. And the chance of survival changes dramatically. Uh, stage one, 95% chance of survival. Stage four, less than 5% chance of survival. So I like to say pretty directly that I, getting hit by a car saved my life. Um, but it also made me step back and think about, am I really spending my life on the most important things to me? Is helping people click on ads and buy apps, is that really what I want to spend my energies on? And and I realized, no, what I want to do is actually give people more of the experience I had, where some technology just dramatically changes the where you're heading with your health. Um, so I came back to Google, uh, met a bunch of people, uh, and we ended up creating Verily, the first uh, bet in Alphabet really focused on healthcare. Uh, I was one of the co-founders there, and I ran all the software projects. Uh, everything from AI for detecting diabetic retinopathy, one of the leading causes of blindness in the world, one of the first AIs and medical devices that was actually uh, out there. Um, and the other project that I really um, am particularly proud of was uh, Onduo, which I was which was my baby from the beginning at, at Verily. Onduo is a diabetes uh, program that really is still going strong and has really changed the way that we care for patients that, that need continuous care. While I was working on that, I really fell in love with the idea of care delivery and closing the gap. We worked on all these great science projects, but there was this huge gap between what we were able to prove in the science lab and what was actually happening in real world medicine. So I started Story Health really to kind of close that gap. Well, first of all, I, I'm I, thank you for sharing that story. Um, I, I'm glad that you did find that. And I would 100% agree that, uh, you know, your accident really did because the stats that you describe are exactly accurate. That's one of the cancers that we know mm. is so often late to the, the party in terms of showing itself, much yes. like pancreatic cancer. Yes. And, um, you, you know, that's great news. I, I, I do have an ask. If you could maybe work sure. on the other hundreds of thousands <laughs> of engineers and have them have that same realization, I think a lot of people would really appreciate it. Yes. Um, but in the meantime, let's talk about how that sort of pivot and change. So you had some formative experiences and, you know, certainly Verily has gone on to mm. uh, progress through. I think, you know, to be fair, it's not been a... 
a straightforward journey because right. as Google and Verily discovered, as you know, some of the other big players, oh, let's do healthcare. This is easy. It's not, mm. right? Right. Um, can you share a little bit of your experiences and learning? You obviously had some success with the diabetic retinopathy, and I'm I'm imagining that was image and image analysis. Yes, that's right. Um, and the on duo. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would, and any learnings that you had through that experience. Yeah, well, I think most one of the challenges that a lot of engineers have when they enter healthcare, as you said, of these, you know, lots of people like myself that were interested is. Uh, we come in a little maverick with our approach, right? We need to actually learn the hard way what it is to truly validate devices, to to prove that we can do what we say we can do. And so I think at Verily, you're seeing that that just takes a while to prove out, right? So big pipeline running there, and start, you're starting to see the first fruitions of that coming to market. Um, but but medicines, uh, the, the stakes are high, uh, and we have to be very careful that uh, we're actually helping patients. There's been a, you know, a long history of scientific ideas that sounded great, but then they didn't prove out, right? So we want to make sure that we don't do that. So um, my, uh, that's absolutely true. And, I, you know, that's very much part of the scientific discovery process. We 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 go down blind alleys. Yes. You know, one of the one of my favorite sort of sayings is, you know, the more mistakes you make, the more you opportunity you have to learn, but you have to learn from them as part of that process. Right. But I think, you know, one of the things that really um, we see a lot in medicine is we make progress, but that progress is not widely distributed. And that's, that's right. not always about equity. You know, that's one of the uh, certainly one of the significant problems, but even excluding that, Yes. We fail to get to the point of wider distribution. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, so I, I, this is a, something we see in our day-to-day -day work all the time. Uh, you mentioned access is a big issue. Certainly, that's, that is certainly part of the problem. Even beyond access, though, is how is care delivered? Uh, and in most cases, if you have a continuing condition, you're going to see a specialist at a clinic visit maybe once every three months. Um, and, and just seeing a specialist every three months is simply not enough time, especially if it's only for 15 minutes. You're just not going to get much time. You, you have so much to talk about. Uh, and so we see this time and time again. Lots of registry studies have shown that patients don't get guideline-directed therapies in these visits. Um, the one that I like to talk about, and you'll probably bring this up later, is, is heart failure. We know that less than 1% of patients are actually on guideline-directed therapy for heart failure even though it is the biggest killer in our country, bigger than cancer, and uh, it's just as serious. Uh, so that is an opportunity for us to think about a different way of caring for patients. And, and why is it? Why don't more people actually get the right therapy? A lot of it comes down to uh, if you're only doing doing a visit and you have to make lots of small changes as people adapt to therapy, it's going to take years to get there. And in, in those years, probably going to be hospitalized, unfortunately. And then we have to almost start all over again. So that that is a real challenge. And then the physicians and the, the NPs that are doing this work, they really don't have much idea of what's going on between visits. So they don't know how to optimize your care when you're at home. Maybe you're having side effects, um, having uh, bradycardia, low heart rate. There's no way for them to know these things. So, so that's, a, that's a real challenge. And then finally, as you mentioned, patients run into all sorts of barriers with the system themselves, right? They almost have to become experts in how to navigate because... If you show up your pharmacy and you want, and the, one of these new medications has been prescribed, a lot of times the pharmacist will tell you, well, there's a $900 copay for that medication, right? Uh, and what do patients do? They walk out and they don't get the prescription filled. 
even though there was probably a path there, but it's really just too hard for patients. Yeah, you 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 <laughs> highlight a, a number of um, challenges for the patient journey, um, you know, including obviously the the cost element and the the cost shifting that's taken place. Um, before we get into that, m- maybe you can help people understand that that one percent, because I think e- even to me that's a little bit shocking. Yeah. I knew it was bad. Yeah, but I have to say I didn't think it was quite that bad. Yeah, that's an astoundingly low um, percentage of individuals that are following best practice. Mm. If we just improved that, if we doubled it, well, I, I, let's not get into yes. the math. But right. if we just improved that and focused on that alone, yes, I'm imagining a you know, given it's one of the top three killers, yep. um, early intervention and so forth. Lots of opportunity to not only save lives but improve health and wellness. What is going on there, and what is what is it that people are missing, and why? Yeah. So fundamentally, you have to understand a, a couple of details here that I think make this a little bit clearer. So there's four different medication classes part of that are part of that guidelines. You have your beta blockers, your ACE inhibitor or ARNI drugs. You have your uh, MRAs. And you have this new fancy drug called SGLT2 inhibitors. So lots of fancy different drugs we can use to treat this disease. You can't just prescribe it and be done. Uh, it would be great if we could do that. We have to start off at a small dose of each of them and slowly increase them as the patient tolerates them. And of course, every patient is going to have a different level that they tolerate, at which point they're going to develop low blood pressure, maybe some symptoms, maybe other things, but we need to push them as high as we possibly can. You can imagine if you were to look at all the combinations, we have to go through probably 15 different steps in the best case scenario with these patients to actually get them on the optimal therapy. 15 different medication changes is just, there's not enough time, there's not enough visits, there's not enough slots, there's not enough cardiologists. There's simply not enough uh, with the existing clinic-based care model in order to be able to do that efficiently. You really need to think differently about how you're going to do that. And that's really how where we come in is we're going to do this much more quickly. We try to do it on a two-week schedule with the patients at home and really measure what's going on with them at home and help them get through all these barriers so that the clinician is involved the entire time, but they're more conducting the orchestra rather than having to visit with these patients on every single visit and play every instrument. So uh, let's talk about that two weeks and what happens in that two weeks. Are, are you talking about you know those four different uh, mm-hmm. treatment modalities? Working through all four of those in that period of time? Yeah. So we typically change. You know, we'll make one change to medication every two weeks. But I mentioned that like there's a lot of different side effects. So we need to watch out for the the vital sign side effects, the symptom side effects, and for a lot of these drugs, we need to have labs drawn, frankly, to see whether you have kidney issues. So all those things uh, we need to get through pretty quickly. And the only way to do that is really to orchestrate a set of home services to make it happen. So as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking that, you know, some of this is flow or Mm -hmm. or workflow, ultimately, sort of driving people through this process. I'm imagining some automation. But there's another aspect to this that I I would think would contribute to at least expedite the process is some of this newer home monitoring or remote yep. patient monitoring that's you know starting to come of age. I, I want to say I'm I'm I, I think we're seeing more of that and and more clinically valid versions of it. Yep. Where do you think the the best or the 
fastest opportunity is to start that process of improvement. Yeah, so that is definitely part of it. Um, the other part of it, though, is as a clinician, typically you're dealing with, frankly, more and more data. Like if you were going to do this every two weeks, now I'm going to give you even more data to look at, right? Uh, do you have more time to see more data? My guess is no. Uh, so we really need to have algorithms that can interpret that data and really bring the clinician in when they need to be there and be able to say things are going fine when they're going fine, right? That's that's the thing that I think is really missing in order to make this a, make this a problem is being able to really build the AI on top of that that can act as the 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 can can be there every moment of every day uh, to make sure that things are going well and be the true guardian angel. So if if that's the sort of critical component to this, um, you, you're now playing what, what I would call interference in between the physician and the patient to try and reduce that data flow. In my mind, it's never a data problem. It's always a filter problem. You're right. filtering appropriately. But that now starts to cross into clinical activity where are you with that process and, yeah. and validating that? Yeah, so we think of it as the typical term is clinical decision support, right? Um, and there's kind of two forms of this. One is uh, the way where, hey, I know exactly what the rules are, and I, I, I set them up myself as a clinician, and, and I can kind of ensure that they're working, right? Uh, and then there's the, the kind of more magical version of clinical decision support, where there's some AI that's just like figuring it out behind the scenes and deciding, right? We are very much in the first camp today, right? We we can uh, set up systems that are explainable. That's the only way to do this really in a, in a way that, frankly, is safe. Um, we will get to the point where we'll have clinically validated AI algorithms that can do it. But I think it's we're still in the process of validating that part of it. And I want to be sure that it's there because uh, it's a great opportunity to take the burden off because it's really hard to tune these rules because um, every patient's different. Like, oh, what is a... What, what is a a heart rate less than 50 mean. Is that a problem? Well, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, right? So uh, we have to be, and the, the promise of the AI algorithms is they can actually see that difference, be able to interpret that. But we're, we're a little ways away from being able to truly trust that. For those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and today I'm talking to Tom Stannis. He is the CEO of Story Health. We were just talking about the um, the process by which you start to include automation. And I think Elegantly, what you're saying is that you're providing a tool set yes. that essentially actions the clinical rules that I as a clinician might uh, use when processing these patients, but you're automating that so that it's really still under the guidance. Okay. As I think about that, the first question I have, and you know, I always go back to a radiologist friend of mine who said, if it costs me one nanosecond longer, I'm, yes. I'm going to use it. It sounds like there's some effort involved on the part of the clinician. Is that true? And how are you overcoming that? Yeah. So, I mean, there is definitely effort in terms of setting up plans um, and things like this. But if you think about it, um, it, the alternative is another follow-up visit with this patient every month for you know for 10 to 12 months that that's a lot more work right so in the end of the day i think you end up with potentially compressing a lot of time uh, and being able to do that very quickly it also frees you up as a clinician so now i have these slots available in my schedule where i was going to have follow-ups and every cardiologist in the world is dealing with a long line of new patients waiting to see them we just don't have the cardiologist to deal with the the volume we have so would you rather be seeing a new patient 
that really needs your particular diagnostic uh, specialty and and then be able to to kind of add them to your panel and expand your influence that way uh, that's that's the real value to clinicians is stop explaining an ACE inhibitor for a thousandth time to the thousandth patient and start doing the interesting work that only you can do. So I, in, in that model, I, and I agree with you to be clear, I think, uh, you, you know, remove the, uh, the repetitive yes. work that tools, technology is good at, process that. But there's a, a, a kicker in the back of this tied to compensation, which in the fee-for-service model says, well, actually, it would be good to get the patient in because then I get income, you know. So unless we shift to this more capitated type model, that's going to represent some challenges. But as you described, there's this big line of people. Uh, what's been your experience as you've started to see this roll out? I actually think there's a, lots of value in a fee-for-service world to do this even today because you start to see things like actually new patients are reimbursed more than follow-up visits. Um, uh, and second, guess what? Every patient that is a new patient is a chance for there to be uh, a definitive treatment, a procedure that needs to be done, a device that needs to be implanted, a surgery that needs to be done, right? That's actually where a lot more of the business of healthcare comes from is finding those opportunities. And guess what? When you see more patients, you find more things, to more people that need these things. So, so it actually opens up the fee-for-service world as well as providing better care. It's nice to, I almost think it was a bridge to the value-based world that you're talking about. How can we treat our patients better, continue to be able to expand our business, but also be starting to lay the foundations for this value-based care world that we know is coming in the future. And in, in your experience, are you seeing uh, improvements in that interaction, particularly with patients who, you know, in yeah. some instances may say, no, I, I, I want to see the physician because, yeah. you know, at some point you're, I don't want to say limiting it, but you're yeah. limiting it unless it's necessary. What's been the response there? Yeah, so that's interesting. One of the things we do is uh, it was not just all technology. There's a service component to this as well. So we have health coaches and nurses that are part of our staff that work with patients and get to know them throughout this entire process. And they're far more available than typically the clinic staff is at a health system because this is their job. Like This is what they're focused on is getting people optimized. And what we found is that they build a real relationship and patients think that they're actually just getting better care. They don't actually don't see a divide between our staff and the health system staff. They feel like it's just all one, one group of people caring for them. And they feel like they're getting better service. So they, they love that. Um, in addition, uh, we are there to help them with so many other things that they, they, they run into, right? So why do people get frustrated with the health system? It's not because uh, it, it it's not because you know the, the, the doctor did the wrong thing. That's very rarely the case. Usually it's, I can't get an appointment or uh, now you want me to come back and take more time off work uh, that I don't have in order to come see you again. Um, or you know, you're, only, you, you, you're late for your appointments by an hour, I have to sit in the waiting room. These are the things that, that patients really struggle with. And by doing it more asynchronously, they actually love that experience a lot more. And it, it leads to frankly, stickier situation for the health system. Uh, the no-show rate we have for patients that come back for visits, it's three to six percent, whereas you see in the in the industry, it's more like ten to twenty percent. So by building that continuous relationship, you actually build a stronger relationship, so they come back to the clinic as well. So, I, as you're gathering all of this data and you know leaning on the the clinician expertise, you're building what I imagine is a 
a data set, even mm. sort of proof points that ultimately might sort of move and shift things to a more automated model that would obtain FDA clearance. Right. What's your sort of timeline? Where do you see that sort of coming through? Yeah, so uh, that's definitely the path that we're on. Um, I think that uh, we're starting a big RCT right now to kind of prove out some of that, some of that stuff. And the data from that will really help us towards our uh, FDA submissions in the, in the future. Uh, we will have to, of course, validate the specific algorithm. So this will just be the first part of it. But I think it's a couple of years out before we start to see really FDA cleared devices for uh, doing a lot of this more automated. And, and and to be clear for for the listeners, when you say FDA devices, you're talking digital therapeutics. It's not really a device in in yes, you know, like a wearable or something. Um, so I, I, great opportunity uh, for that. Um, but at this point, narrow. I, I think for congestive heart failure is your sort of primary target. Do you have other targets? Well, so the, it's funny. The pattern repeats itself. Uh, you see this across all kinds of disease things, uh, such as hypertension. Same problem, uh, actually a little bit simpler, but the the effects are are more dramatic in terms of the the undertreatment of patients and the the sequelae of that. Um, uh, in cancer, we see this a lot. Actually, in between when people are on chemotherapy, a lot of times they will go home from their therapy. They'll have lots of side effects from that. It's very famous the kind of the side effects people have from chemotherapy. There's actually lots of drugs to treat that, but they're 50% of the time they're not actually used according to guidelines. Uh, all over the place, you see in medicine opportunities to really improve this kind of therapeutic uh, inertia uh, if we do it outside of a clinic visit and we do it more connectedly. So uh, it, this is really just the tip of the iceberg. So one of the prevailing things that I hear repeatedly around AI is it's not generalizable. I mean, that seems mm -hmm. like utopia yep. for AI. Yep. Um, it, it sounds a little bit like some of this is generalizable. Maybe there are modules or elements of this that you can apply in other specialties, yes. um, maybe validate. Is is that true? Are you approaching a more generalizable sort of uh, um, technology? Yeah, so we think of it as the story health platform, and that's what we built from the beginning because we, we definitely saw that, that all these components of making sure that patients are, you know, going through the treatment correctly, that they're able to make it, make progress, that the symptoms are being reasonably managed, that they're able to get to the lab. And if they're not able to get to the lab, why not? All those things are very generalizable and, and usable across these different conditions. So I, I feel like though that you do need to build those disease specific modules to really understand the expertise and not just say, oh, just use it for whatever. Like I, th I do think it is important to have um, expertise in each of the different treatment areas also as protocol modules. So looking back, what would you say were the sort of inflection points to, you know, real progress in this? And mm. what are you excited about for the future? Yeah, so one of the big inflection points was this reg this registry trial done uh, uh, by some people at UCLA, Duke, and a bunch of other centers that really highlighted the problem. Um, that happened about three years ago, and it was wonderful to see the scientific community really focus on hey, what's the gap and, and why is it happening? So that, that's been wonderful to see the whole uh, cardiology community be, be linking arms around this problem. So I think that was a big thing. The second thing really was the, the digital health revolution that's happened in the last year or two. Um, COVID really, if there's one silver lining, it's that we've thought about new models of care because we had to. And that's been very exciting for, for all of us. Uh, and I think that's going to be the next big uh, th lead to the next milestone, which is, we're going to get to the point where 
the current fee-for-service world of uh, is starting to crumble, frankly. A lot of the health systems are really struggling. They're losing money. Uh, so we're starting to see that be a big impetus, too, to say we can't just do things the way we used to. We actually have to work with more partners and, and do things differently. Uh, and that, I think, is the big milestone that's coming next. Yeah, I, I, I think the um, I, I've said this a, 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 any number of times on this show, you know, that it's it's almost in. It's painful to say the silver lining to the pandemic, but it really has been. It sort of opened people's eyes to the potential, um, allowing for an approach that I think historically was resisted for a variety of, you know, maybe good reasons and in many cases not good reasons, you know, somewhat dogma. Um, but indeed, you know, changing the way that we approach this so that we start to deliver. And, you know, in that instance, you now get to the inequity, you deliver yep. better care and obviously price points, economics all drop. So I think exciting times, um, you know, delighted to hear about it. Unfortunately, as we do each week, uh, we've run out of time. Just remains for me to thank you, uh, Tom, for joining me on the uh, show. Thanks very much. Thank you, Nick, for having me. It was a wonderful discussion. Thanks. Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at DrNick1 on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution. 